I hope you all had a limousine riding, jet flying kind of week getting ready for the start of Big Ten action, but it is Friday, and you know what Friday means. It is the Rutgers ScoutCast. Welcome everyone to episode 29 of the Rutgers ScoutCast. That's right, we've been doing this for more than six months now. It's longer than I thought this would live as your host. I, Sam Hellman, a publisher of Scholar Report, Send my thank you to everyone that has listened, subscribed, and rated the Rutgers ScoutCast in iTunes to keep this alive, and really it is one of the highlights of my week when I'm able to put this together and interact with fans in a different way. I'm able to connect with people at Rutgers in a different way than just the usual football conversations, and I'm able to catch up with old friends, and that's what this show is about. I caught up with one of my old friends from college, Kevin Salm who was an equipment manager at Rutgers while he was a student and has since moved on and found a lot more success in life than I have in the five, six years since we've both left the friendly confines of living on College Avenue. Kevin has really an amazing story. It's a story of life and death, a story of the real issues that face football, that face college football athletes, It's a story that I've told before as a student writing for the Daily Targum, but one that I think everyone should hear. I think that even if you are not listening to this for football reasons, if you're just a Rutgers basketball fan or you're a big Sam Hellman fan, there's, you know, my parents listen at least. It's worth listening to Kevin because he's got an amazing story to tell. I hope everyone gives him a chance listening in the body of the show coming up in just a minute. It's going to be a quicker open to the show this week because I want to get right to my conversation with Kevin. I went up and met with Kevin last week in Morristown, New Jersey, where he works. You know, he has a real job. I don't. And Kevin and I sat down. We talked for 25 minutes about his history. We talked about the story of his life, which is something called Second Impact Syndrome. Second Impact Syndrome is... A concussion on top of a concussion. You know, in, in Inception, they call it a dream within a dream. This is the concussion version of that. And Kevin, who was the counterpart to Michael Burton at West Morris Central High School in the offensive backfield, has a great story that I can't wait for you to hear. So you're going to hear that in just a second. I also spoke a little bit with Kevin, just, you know, catching up two friends that haven't seen each other in a couple years. He's been actually living in my neck of the woods. He went to Georgetown for graduate school. So we talk a little bit about that. He worked for Greg Schiano and Kyle Flood. So we talk about both of those experiences. He's close with Michael Burton. He's close with other people in the Rutgers football program. I was excited to hear his perspective on Chris Ash. Kevin knew Kyle Flood and knew Greg Schiano and worked for both of them. But for Chris Ash, he's an outsider. He's You know, other than following what's in the press, what's on scarletreport.com, and from talking to his friends that are still with the program, he's an outsider. So I enjoyed hearing the outside perspective of someone that used to work for the program and still follows it. And after you hear from Kevin, uh, we're going to sit down and we're obviously going to talk about the Rutgers' latest storylines building up to the Big Ten opener against Iowa quarterbacks, Najee Clayton recruiting. There's a lot going on right now that I'm excited to discuss football-wise. If you want to learn more about Kevin and his story after listening to the episode, shoot him a follow on Twitter at KSOM, 
S-A-U-M 37. You can also check him out at the headsandtails.org slash podcast. That's headsandtails.org slash podcast. One other website that I'd like for you to check out before we sit down and talk with my friend Kevin Somm is fanessentials.net. How would you like to get your favorite team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Well, check out fanessentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to, and each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan, or you can be selfish and go ahead and get one for yourself. Prices start at just $34.99 at fanessentials.net. But here's the thing. Because you're a fan of the Rutgers ScoutCast, you can use my promo code SCARLET. You put that in at fanessentials.net at checkout, and you get 30% off your first month just like that. Visit fanessentials.net to get all the essentials you need. All right, welcome to... Uh, the Rutgers Scoutcast interview for this week. My guest, you probably never heard of him before, but he's a guy that spent a lot of time at Rutgers just like me. He knows a lot about Rutgers football from his time there. Kevin Song, thanks for joining me. Sam, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. All right, Kevin, we've I guess we've known each other. We've been friends for maybe, what, four or five years. We went to school around the same time and had the misfortune of being in classes together, I think. <laughs> yeah, Dean Schuster's class, right? Sports and American Culture, I believe. It was called something like that. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't have passed my junior year without you, I don't think, because we did a big interview. I did a big story for the Daily Targum, and you were one of the main subjects of that, which we'll get into You know why I think you're such an interesting person to talk to. But first, you, you're a guy that's been around Rutgers football. You've been around football for a long time. What is your history with Rutgers football? So, I mean... You can start with like 2006, just being a high school football player and being in New Jersey and looking up to all these guys like Ray Rice and Brian Leonard. So kind of the mystique of Rutgers football, like it was at its peak when I was at my most influential stage in my life, I guess, in my football career. So I always had my eye on the Rutgers football program just because of the success they had during those years. And because I got hurt, Rutgers ended up being the best school that I got into, so I kind of that's kind of how I ended up there. But I really missed football, so then you know my my freshman year, so then I got a job with the football team as a, a student equipment manager, and that was fun in a way that I could just like throw the football around. I got to be in the locker room, see the guys, travel with the team. It was a pretty sweet gig for anyone who can't play anymore and wants us to to stay in the game. Now, I mean, we're both adults now. You went to grad school at Georgetown. You graduated from Rutgers just like I did. I'm going to guess that all of that stuff was a cakewalk after you had to work for Greg Schiano. Uh Definitely in terms of, like, pressure-packed situations, I guess. Um, yeah, Coach Schiano is definitely someone that everyone respected, for sure. And, like, you definitely walked on eggshells around him. Like, you didn't. If, if he noticed you, you probably did something wrong, in, at least in my position as a student manager. And I can think of one instance where, uh, you might remember it too, but I got ripped so hard at practice once in front of the whole entire team. 
I don't know if you want me to go into specifics. Oh, please. I, and my favorite is whenever the, the blow horn wasn't working at the end of practice, and yeah. Greg would just take it, he'd smash it, and he'd literally put it right Ridges. two inches in front of someone's face and blow it in their face. Yeah. I had a couple instances with the, the air horn when I was working for, for Coach Flood. But, yeah, one time at, at practice when I was working for Coach Giano, it was the team period for offense, and I was spotting the ball. And the, the period before that, you know, it was on one yard line or whatever. I forget which specific one it was, but usually there's always a script at practice, and it tells you what hashtag or what hashtag, which hash the ball is going to be on. And then Coach Yano would usually say like what yard line he wanted it on. Right. So we got the offensive, the off like first team offense on one side of the field, first team defense on the other side of the field, both practicing against the scouts, and they just hap- the both quarterbacks happen to like roll out in the same direction, almost hit each other. So then he stops practice. Runs over to me. He screams. He's like, "Manager!" Yeah, he, he didn't know anyone's names. They were everyone was manager. Yeah. At one point in time, he actually did know my name because I kept track of like the running back stats in terms of like plays and carries and stuff. Oh. And he wanted to know like who had what carries. But I think after that season, he just forgot who I was, and I was back to manager again. <laughs> and basically, then he told me if they ever got hurt, that I would be. Uh, fired so fast, I'd be working at Subway. And why he chose Subway, I'm not really sure. But <laughs> it was definitely one of the more humiliating points of my life. I, I wish that I could share some of the things I've heard Greg Schiano yell at practices because they're ridiculous. Um, Kev, did you play with Michael Burton? I did. I played with Mike at Westmore Central. So my junior year, he was a freshman. He started at linebacker. And my senior year, we started together in the backfield and at, at linebacker as well. And, yeah, from – an early age, this kid was a stud in our town. We knew that there was something different about that kid. But with you guys in the same backfield, you being the veteran, I assume that you're taking all the credit for his successes since Westmore Central. Uh, I don't know about if I would take all the credit for it, but I do like to think that I had something to do with his work ethic at least. Um, Mike's definitely one of the hardest workers, harder worker than I ever was. The hardest workers that I've ever seen in my life. And I remember, you know, working out in the winter, you know, just doing winter lifting and stuff, and me. Me and Mike, I was two years older than Mike, but he was still lifting the same weights that I was lifting because he was just an animal. And we would always be like, you know, running extra laps, you know, after after the lifting sessions. I always try to do like something extra to get better. And I I like to think that Mike kind of carried that with him, but I'm sure he was kind of born with that. So absolutely, yeah. Uh, Kevin, you worked for Greg Schiano, you worked for Kyle Flood. You were at the Howard game as a fan to watch the start of the Chris Ash era. For you, that's been, I guess, a little bit removed from Rutgers with you you know, going to grad school, having a life outside of Rutgers, which I was never able to accomplish. Right. Uh, what do you think about what Chris Ash is doing? What, you know, you, I'm sure you at least see the Twitter and the headlines and all right. that. What do you think about what he's doing? Um, it, it seems like he's going in the right direction. I mean, I, I have a lot, I had a lot of friends who worked in the athletic department who, you know, talked pretty highly of uh, Coach Ash, and specifically what I liked from what they told me was this Champions Club that he uh, started with the guys, because I know they had some disciplinary issues last season, obviously, which... Putting it lightly. Yeah, most of the country knows about. So obviously, you know, it's kind of setting the wrong message and the wrong tone for what Rutgers football is, and I think it's starting to get back to what it was, you know, back in probably 2006 and in that era of, you know, rewarding good behavior, and I think... That's a novel thing, you know, and gives kids, you know, all kids like gear. So if they're getting, you know, Champions Club gear and, and stakes at the Hale Center, that's a good incentive to 
keep it up. This is the reason why the opening is such a success in high school. You go out to Nike facilities in Oregon and you get gear. Exactly. All about yeah. Why every team has you know sixteen different versions of their their uniform combinations. And hey, with the new Rutgers ones, you can even see the numbers on the uniforms. Yeah, exactly. I like the new ones a lot. They're cool. They're going back to that original look, but still has a little modern look to. I was in the equipment room, so I, I appreciate. Good, good swag. Kevin, the main reason I wanted to have you on, when we were in school together, I, I, I think I was a year ahead of you. I can't, I'm not good at math, so it doesn't matter. But we took a class together, and you and a bunch of the other more athletic people in the class did a project uh, talking about injury and sport, the, the culture of playing through injuries, right. how stupid that it is to hide injuries from your coaches and what the real repercussions are down the road. You have an amazing story. I was fortunate enough to shadow you guys. You, you went and spoke at high schools. You did a, a documentary video, and I shadowed you guys and wrote uh, a big story in the Daily Targum about all of your stories. It was really cool for me, although I went back and read the story yesterday before we did it, and I right. was just cringing. You know, you like, look at oh, yeah. you look at anything you did five First years ago. First podcast episode, you're like, yeah, that was awful. Yeah, it was cool for me because I'd heard after I'd written this story, and the general theme of the story is injury culture in American sports and why you shouldn't hide injuries from your coach. And it was cool for me because I talked to Greg Schiano one-on-one about his injury policies, and I was told that after the article ran, he gave the article to the whole team and said, hey, read this, this is why you can't hide injuries from me. And you were a big part of that. See, I didn't even know that, to be honest. That and. It makes me feel good that my story might be able to help other people. Um, I mean, when I think back to that, like I was thinking back, you know, before this interview, like who was involved. I remember Remo, uh, what's his last name? Yeah, Remo Fiorinelli was like a third string tight end. Yeah. He, he was involved in it. Uh, yeah, Steph- her- Stefante Kent, uh, fullback that people might remember. And Alan and Jamie too. Right, and Brendan Porter who played lacrosse at Rutgers yep. and was a good football player in high school. You guys all got together for it. Right. But their stories were all kind of normal injury stories that right. you experience in sports. Yours, yours wasn't. So I guess I'm just going to ask you to uh, yeah, tell me more about it. You know, I'm sure that you've told this story a million times, but Rutgers podcast listeners here don't know about it. For sure. All right, so I played, as, as uh, Sam said, I played with Mike Burton back in high school. And in my senior season, I suffered a concussion in... I think it was game three or game four, game four of our uh, our season, and at the time I didn't have any like immediate effects from it. I didn't have any you know memory loss. I wasn't unconscious. I didn't even have a headache. It wasn't until the next day when we were watching or we, we always run sprints before we watch film after the game. And when I was running sprints, it literally felt like my brain was like bouncing inside my head, and my head, it was the most excruciating headache that I've ever had in my life. So that was. An indication that I had a concussion, but I just didn't tell anyone, you know, because I was trying to be, you know, a tough guy. You're, like, start, you're starting yeah, offense. Was, you're a key player in this offense. You want to play. Yeah, I was a fullback, linebacker in the wing tee, so I ran the ball more than I did anything else. And captain, senior, want to win a state championship. And I, like, I think there were some smaller schools looking at you as a guy that they might want to put on scholarship. So this is big-time implications. Of, yeah. You're, you're, you're a legitimate recruit at the college level. Yeah, my I was I really wanted to go to Lehigh University. That was like my my goal that I wanted to play football there. Um, 
Well, basically, anyway, I had these headaches, and they just never went away. So, like, I was even sitting at a gym class, you know, that week going, going forward because I didn't want to move. Like, my head was hurting me so bad. And I was even told, like, I told my mom that my mom was on a business trip, and she, like, I was telling my mom that my head was hurting me. And she's like, well, I read this People Magazine article about this football player who, you know, played with a concussion, and he died from second impact syndrome. And I was like, no, nah, I probably have a sinus infection or something. I'm fine. Like, yeah, rub some dirt on it, Kevin. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's the thing with, like, the culture of toughness in sports. is like I've been told since I was seven to, like, suck it up and keep playing. So, like, you know, I never thought twice about sitting out or not playing that next game or even telling my athletic trainer that my head was hurting me. So going into this next game, uh, I had excruciating headaches. I was not playing like myself. Like, even in practice, I was, like, avoiding contact. And I was the type of player that was, like, Adam Sandler and the water boy like I wasn't gonna make moves and like juke you out like Mike Burton like I was gonna run through you you had to was... impress Vicky Valancourt exactly yeah so yeah and she showed me her boobies so. and I like them too <laughs> um, sorry a couple of a uh, couple of uh, 90s kids here yeah um so you know I, I wasn't gonna not play either way so pop like four Advil before the next game and just kind of hope for the best and then probably the end of the first quarter I started having blurred vision after I got hit in the side of the head. And I thought it was weird, but it was also really foggy that night, so I kind of talked myself into thinking it wasn't really that bad, like I'm probably okay. And the next play, I scored a touchdown, so I'm like, all right, I'm good. You know, I'm yeah. feeling good. But then on the next offensive series, I get hit again. This time I get wrapped up in the backfield, and as I'm going down, one of the other defenders comes in and goes right for my head. So he hits me in the head, and I slam my head on the ground. And I get up to see why the ref didn't throw a flag for unnecessary rumps or whatever because I felt like that second hit was just unnecessary. Uh-huh. So, because I was already going down. So, but when I stood up, I couldn't feel my legs. So from the waist down, it was just like rubber. And I was starting to freak out because I'm like, I know I've had concussions before. I've, you know, I know other people who had concussions and no one ever said that they couldn't feel their legs. So my friends helped me to the sideline. And eventually, uh, my athletic trainer checked me out. Um... And she noticed that I was gazing towards the right side, which was an indication to her that I had a brain bleed. So I, at this point, I had second impact syndrome, which is when an athlete has a concussion before it heals or before his symptoms subside. For me, my, symptom, my only symptom really was a really bad headache. So before that symptom heals, the athlete sustains another impact to their head. It doesn't even have to be to their head. It could be to their body or anything that kind of jostles their head around. And then it re-injures the, the brain, or it injures an already injured brain. And sometimes when you're a kid, it's uh, usually this doesn't happen to like NFL players. You never hear about this because their brains are already full, fully developed. It has something to do with um, young athletes and their brains not being fully developed. It leaves them more vulnerable to something like this happening. And it also leads to uncontrollable like brain swelling. So I had a subdermal hematoma, which is a fancy word for a brain bleed, and a subarachnoid hematoma, which is another fancy word for a brain bleed, and my brain was swollen. So basically, as soon as she noticed that I had a brain bleed, she called for a helicopter, and I had a grand mal seizure basically as soon as she called for that. And at that point, I wasn't breathing, and that's a common thing with second impact syndrome. That's usually how people go, or the kids go brain dead or they die, is because your brain swells so much that it cuts off your brain stem, and then you stop breathing. So she was breathing for me. She said that my seizure lasted about 15 minutes, and then I snapped out of it. And, like, at that point, cognitively, I was there. This is, like, right before they got me in the helicopter. Uh-huh. And they were actually about to intubate me because I wasn't breathing. So 
once I snapped out of it, I was cognitively fine. But when I got to the hospital and they gave me CAT scans, they're like, holy crap, like, this kid should be dead because his, you know, his CAT scans are so bad. But long story short with that, I basically had to have two head surgeries to relieve the pressure on my brain. So they basically drilled a hole into my skull and um, I, I was fine after that. And I actually needed to, I actually was able to play baseball in the spring. So, I mean, that was... Long, it was like basically six months until I got back to being able to play sports again and stuff like that. But I'm the lucky one because most of the, the statistics on second impact syndrome are like 50% of the athletes don't survive. And then out of the people who do survive, they're generally mentally handicapped for the rest of their life in some way, shape, or form. So the fact that I'm able to walk, talk, feed myself, you know, do pretty much everything I could do before that injury except play football like just don't get hit in the head and you're you're, you'll be all right so the reason that i wanted to talk to you about all this stuff is because obviously concussions and that stuff is even bigger five years later yeah the issue the real issue here and i think it's an issue specifically at the high school and the college level uh is when you hide injuries and I, i mean it sounds like that's exactly what you did and the quote that I'm pulling up a big Daily Targum article here, which you can find on dailytargum.com. This is what Kevin told me, uh, I guess it was about five years ago that we did this. You said that, I almost died for my team, and honestly, now that I think about it, even if I went back and I had to make the same decision again, I would still have a hard time not playing. Yeah, and honestly, that's still true today. Like, I still get upset about it. Like, I speak at... I have a hard time speaking at schools because a lot of times coaches don't want me to tell my story because it's scary. Right. Um, but when I do talk about it, I usually get pretty emotional because it it kills me. Like, I feel like I did try to, I like almost killed myself for a cause that at 17 years old I thought was the world, you know? And to look back and see how that kind of altered the path of my life, not necessarily in a bad way, but it definitely changed my, it was a life-changing, you know, experience. I get emotional about it because it's, I don't know, it's its kind of, it, it freaks me out a little bit, but I think that's the problem in sports is that, you know, I played football for 10 years of my life at that point in time, and like, to me, it was everything, you know, so people don't think about the consequences, especially when it comes to your head because it's something that's easy to hide, and, you know, I, I don't blame my coaches, I don't blame any football, I don't, I would not play football again, you know, I would just say something when I, my head was hurt. You got to be honest with yourself. And I mean, the more elite athletes that I've been around, you know, since that time, I feel like the ones who are the best are the ones who are most in tune with their bodies and know when to push and know when to pull back. And when your head's hurting you, that's a time to pull back and be like, all right, I might need to sit out for a couple of weeks. Because had I sat out for two weeks after that initial concussion, I probably could have went on to play college football. Right. But because I chose not to, I sit out for the rest of my life. Like, it's, I can't snowboard. I can't do all, a lot of things that I would love to do that I can't do. And I'm not complaining. Like, there's people in, obviously in a lot worse situations than what I'm in. You know, I'm, I'm blessed to be as lucky as I was. But, I mean, it's a, like I said, it's a life-changing decision that you make to play hurt. There, I mean, there are, as crazy as it sounds, there are positives to what happened to you. Uh, and that's what I want to kind of close this interview with is that you turn your injury into what ended up being your career, it seems like. Uh, since you've left Rutgers and went to Georgetown, you're still very involved with this. 
What are you doing now? You mentioned talking to high schools, but other than that, I mean, how much of your life are you devoting to this idea and how, how much does it inspire you? Right, so at Rutgers, I really had this like identity crisis. Like I go from being this athlete who wanted to play college sports and I, that was my whole my goal for I, since I can remember. And then because I chose to play hurt, that goal was never attainable. And then I had to kind of alter what I was doing. So I kind of set my path as to, you know what, I'm going to, and a lot of it had to do with Eric Legrand and his story. And when he came back and had a big smile on his face and instead of me, when I was sulking around feeling bad for myself, I was like, you know what, maybe I should, you know, make something positive out of, you know, the, the gift that I was given, you know, with, with being fine. So I kind of channeled all my energy and my competitive juices of what I used to do in sports into school. And I was like, you know what? I want to go down to Georgetown. I want to work for the NFL Player Association. I want to make sports safer to play. Like, I don't want to not play football. I don't want parents to not let their kids play football because of my injury. I want them to know that when their head hurts, don't play. You know, like, just listen to your body. Like, only you know what's going on inside you. So you have to voice that opinion. And if you do sit out for a week, it's a game that you're missing. Whereas if you play with that headache or concussion or whatever, you could be sitting out the rest of your life or dead, you know? So went down to Georgetown, focused on a lot of health and safety stuff. Like in my capstone, I worked closely with one of the attorneys at the NFL Player Association, working on some stuff that he wanted to do. I don't know how confidential it still is, but basically trying to, we compared NFL to like coal mining and other industries with you know, high incident rates of injury. Uh And we kind of use that format in terms of like health and safety protocols that those industries have. And I put it into the NFL to show what that would look like. Um, So that was fun. I really loved it there. And then now I I transitioned to a research associate job at um, Atlantic Sports Health here in Morristown, New Jersey. Uh, My boss is Dr. Damian Martins. He's the, the Jets internal medicine doctor. Um, so I, I coordinate all those research studies, but basically, yeah, I, I love sports. I was a sport management major, played them all my, my whole life, and I don't want you know stories like my own and Eric's to keep people away from playing sports. I'd rather just you know start a conversation and make them safer, and to show that there is life after sports. You know, for because everyone's career ends at some point in time, so that's kind of what my my podcast is about. Yeah, I was just gonna say uh, for people, we have a lot of coaches, a lot of parents. A lot of football people that listen to this, for that, the people that may want to have you speak or, or want to learn more about what you're doing, where can they find your show? And I know that you have an online presence, a social media presence. Yeah, so you can find my podcast at headsandtails.org. So heads is in multiple heads, the letter N, and then T, and then tails spelled T-A-L-E-S, like you're telling a story. Um, and I'm actually in the process of starting two new podcasts. So there's going to be one that's dedicated to athlete stories of perseverance. So that's basically what I do. I interview athletes who have overcome either injury, illness, addiction, whatever kind of obstacle you know they might have incurred, and then showed you know how they got through it and what they're doing now. Whether it's going back to their sport or whether it's you know a completely different thing that they're you know doing something else positive in the world. And then I'm starting two new ones, which is going to be an educational podcast, which is more like um, probably this episode, where we talk about different health and safety stuff or innovations in sports and how we can make sports safer. And also, like for example, I have a four-part series with uh, sports psychologists that help you transition life after sports, deal with post-concussion syndrome, um, manage you know being away from your team, you know if you have an injury or whatever. 
And then I'm going to have a podcast completely dedicated to concussion stories and dealing with post-concussion syndrome and also like just health experts uh, in, in the field. And we'll have all those links and you sounds like you'll be able to check me out on one of those shows yeah, soon. He's got sure. Eric Legrand on there. There's Coming up. Yeah. Plenty of Rutgers flavor from a Rutgers graduate. And speaking of that, I have three rapid fire questions that I throw at the end of every interview to every Rutgers guy I talk to. All right. My first one is, who is your favorite Rutgers athlete of all time, Kevin? Okay, well, this is a little biased question because I'd probably go with my, my boy Mike Burton. Um, can't you, you gotta love his story? You know, he goes from being a, a walk, preferred walk on under Coach Chiano, earning a scholarship, becoming a captain, getting drafted in the the, the fifth round, I think. Of, yeah, yeah, I believe so. Yeah, by the, by Detroit, and with he's Ron, having a, with Ron Prince out there. Yeah, off to a, a great start uh, out in Detroit. Um, my favorite current Rutgers player is probably Sebastian Joseph. Uh, he's just like great dude. He's like the kind of guy that you just like. He's just just such a nice guy. Huge. You'd be afraid of him if you just walked past him, but he's like a big teddy bear. He's a, he's an awesome guy, and I'm always rooting for him. Yeah, second question, your favorite memory when you think about your time at Rutgers? Uh, this was a tough one for me. I thought I was thinking it'd probably be the St. Petersburg Bowl because it was my first year working for the team. We got to go, we got to you know get out of our, our finals early, go down to St. Petersburg, hang on the the warm summer weather. We won. I got a bowl ring. I don't know. It was just cool. We, and we got home before Christmas, so we didn't miss anything. Uh, so I'd say the St. Saint Petersburg Bowl was probably my favorite memory. The only thing I remember about that is Tim Brown's out in right field at the end of the game, and yeah. li- he's literally having his children thrown to him from the stands and oh, he's catching them. Oh, yeah. Classic Tim Brown. Yeah. Uh, last question. You, you get one more meal on the Rutgers campus. Where are you going and what are you ordering? 100% Hansel and Griddle. And it would be a barbecue bacon chicken crisp and a banana flip. All right, Kevin. The thanks best, for the time, yeah. man. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it, Sam. Thanks again to my friend Kevin Som for joining us for a different look at football. It was good catching up with him this week. And I'm equally excited to catch up now in our latest episode of As the Quarterback Turns here with Scout National Recruiting Analyst, Brian Doan. Brian, welcome to another drama-filled edition of the Rutgers quarterback competition. (laughs) I don't know what's ever going to happen if Rutgers settles on a quarterback because I've been covering this program, I think this is my eighth season, and I think there's always been quarterback drama. Going back to Tom Savage and whoever the Michigan State transfer was, who was it, Dom Natale, whatever it was. I mean, you got to be kidding me. Can we just get an answer? And the problem is you're looking for an answer, but there are no answers right now. So, yeah, this looks like we'll be talking about it for probably the next 15 to 16 months at least. Yeah, well, I mean, Tom Riddle cursed the defense against the dark arts job when he left Hogwarts, and I think that Tom Savage did the same thing when Greg Schiano allowed him can, to Can transfer. I guess who Voldemort is in this whole thing, or do you want to pick him? <laughs> Well, I feel like ever since the Tom Savage Chase Dodd drama of 2009 and 10 took place, quarterbacks have been the hot topic. It's no different now. Chris Laviano, it's no secret, he was poor at best against New Mexico. He was pulled for performance reasons. That's the first time we've seen that at quarterback. He was did not carry himself well, let's say, during the week leading up to Iowa, you know, as an interview. 
while the other two quarterbacks, they did, and they're ready if called upon. Yeah, it's interesting because I think I mentioned this on the board just about how, you know, when they pulled Laviano, the game wasn't over. And, and to make a move midway through the fourth quarter when you have the ball deep in New Mexico territory and just decide to give it to a guy who hasn't played quarterback in a game since, geez, who knows, high basically, school. Basically <laughs> since the opening outside yeah. of one or two passes. Right. And, and so you're looking and you say, okay, is that how bad Chris Laviano was on this day? And, and yeah, I think so. And it also showed you that, you know what, if you're not going to perform – we're going to see if we can find somebody who will perform. And just because you may be the best perceived option, if in the game you're going to go south and you're not going to figure out a way to work through it, then you're coming out and we'll find somebody who will try to embrace the situation and grab the job. Now, Zach Allen did not do that. We sit here with Chris Laviano as the expected starter going into Iowa right. with a – you know, it's an incredibly short leash. I mean, shoot, if he audibles into the wrong play after the first game, people are going to start complaining if they notice it. I look at it and I say, where is this going? Because it's not going where Chris Laviano is the starter in the middle of October. I don't know if he's the starter going to Ohio State. It really is a unique quarterback situation. I mean, four quarterbacks in three games and it's it's strange, but you can tell they're searching for answers. And what I like is they're proactive about it. They're going to sit there and try to get guys playing time. Let me tell you something, brother. Uh, <laughs> Chris Laviano did not play well against New Mexico. He does not fit Drew Maringer's offense. But Chris Ash couldn't be any clearer than he was on Monday when he said, if we had a better option, we'd play him. They don't see that right now. And even though they don't, they're still trying to find something else, something that fits the offense. I, I think that will be Zach Allen this week if Chris Laviano struggles again. I don't know for sure. The other thing I'll say about Chris Laviano is you can criticize him as much as you want. A lot of it is deserved. He hasn't played well. He's made mistakes. But it's not Chris Laviano's fault that he's playing. He's not the one that – you know. he's not going to say, hey, coach, I don't think I deserve to start this week. Why don't you sit me f for someone else? He's doing his best to compete for a job that he wants to win. Every quarterback wants to play. Chris Laviano does. Also, Chris Laviano's not the one that's running the wrong routes, and Chris Laviano's not the one that, who can't protect against a uh, pass rush. So some of it's his fault. Not all of it's his fault. Uh, we've talked about that a bunch of times, about receivers running the right routes and all that other stuff. I'm not looking at it from that point of view. When you say he doesn't fit this offense, let's be clear. It's not because he's not a good runner he doesn't fit this offense. It's because he can't get rid of the ball on time and he's not accurate. Okay, Because you don't need to be a great runner to run this offense. But if you're not accurate and you don't throw the ball on time, then running helps out a lot. And having receivers who can get open off the line of scrimmage helps out markedly, which is why when you're projecting – you know, what do you do with Alan Walters or Arthur Sikowski if they decide to commit in the 2018 class? How do they fit in? Because they're not pure runners. That's why. So the idea that you need a true dual-threat kid in this offense is false. I agree. So the question I asked you this last week, Brian, I'll ask you again. If you are Chris Ash, how do you handle the quarterback situation against Iowa? Well, that's tough because – I'm not in Chris Ash's mind to know what he thinks of this season. If you decide that this season is a wash 
and you need to build for 2017 and 2018, you play Tylen Odin when it goes south for Laviano. If you are when, trying... Not if. When I have all the faith in the world that he'll do well against Iowa. If you have decided that you still want to try to push for a ball berth or whatever this season, then you have to make the decision between Giovanni Rossigno and Zach Allen and who gives you the better chance to win from that standpoint. So you have to know what his thought process is going into it. And I think with what you've seen the last two weeks, they haven't gotten to that point yet. And that's okay. You don't need to get to that point right now. Um, but that's what you're looking at in terms of what is happening with the quarterbacks. But I'll say this. I don't see this team going to the ball. So whether it's now against Iowa, whether you want to tell Odin, hey, just watch Iowa, Ohio State, Michigan, and then you make the move when the schedule in a perceived way gets a little softer, that's fine too. But I said it before the season, Sam, and I'm going to say it again. By the middle of October, I still expect Tyler Odin to be the starting quarterback. I agree. I would say that two and one is not a time to think about calling the season a wash or not going to a bowl game. You obviously have to prepare for every contingency if you're Rutgers, but you go into Iowa trying to win the game. You go into every game trying to win. You play to win the game. That's why, you take, that's why you're on the field. I would agree with you that, look, Chris Laviano, I'm going to start him again, but I'm ready to bench him if New Mexico happens again. And as much as I appreciate Zach Allen's knowledge of the offense, the two that I look at are Giovanni Rossigno and Tyler Oden because the two of them are two that you can develop with higher ceilings. I think Zach Allen, what he is now, is pretty much what he's going to be as a junior and senior. The other two guys are still young and can develop, so I would consider them over Zach Allen. If you haven't gotten your fix of quarterback yet, Brian is scout national recruiting analyst, so he's going to give you a little more quarterback and something at least that Rutgers fans can look forward to in the future, and that is St. Peter's prep Jonathan Lewis. He's committed to Rutgers. You heard him on this show about two months ago talking about his development, and I tell you what, from seeing the film when you went to go see him and from talking to you, it sounds like that development has taken another step since the start of his senior season. Yeah, it's taken a step in a good direction, which I think is important. Right, it's not a step right, backward. Right. I mean, I look at it and see where he was in late August when I saw him at a scrimmage uh, at Montclair High with our good friend John Fiore up there coaching the Mounties. He does a great job, and you heard Tre JPO talk him up big time on this podcast. Tremendous guy. Tre I, I love how he has his passion for his players. But anyway, I saw John there, and he struggled with his accuracy. He struggled with his touch. He was trying to be too fine because he's got such a powerful arm. Um, and then I saw him play against Petty in the first half. He hurt his hip, toughed it out for the end of the first half, didn't play in the second half. They kind of took his helmet away and wouldn't let him on the field. But he looked better. He looked more accurate. He was more comfortable. He ran the offense well. They're switching quarterbacks up there because they have a, a younger kid that they want to get some reps for. Very different kind of guy, more of a runner than John's kind of more dual threat, but he just looked comfortable. And as I'm watching it, I'm thinking to myself, this is so similar to what Rutgers wants to do offensively, read option, quick throws. He moved his feet well. He really got his hips turned and his shoulders turned. He, he threw the ball well. And I'm really curious to see what happens over the next few months 
because given his proximity and his ability to come to spring practices and his ability to learn an offense, he will be a realistic option in my mind to be able to play in 2017 because physically he's strong enough. He's 6'3 and a half, 228, um, just a big, thick kid who can withstand getting hits. He's a smart kid, and he competes. I remember talking to his coach, Richie Hansen, before last year, and they weren't sure what they were going to do at the quarterback spot. And he's, all right, we're going to split reps, or maybe John's not going to win the job. So they started keeping track in practice of who won the day, and that's how they were going to determine the starter. And John was winning every day, and it wasn't close. And he stepped his game up when it was time for competition. And I almost get the sense that that's what happened again this year. He likes competition. He likes to be pushed. And I think the biggest thing, Sam, that I took out of it is he still can run. He keeps his eyes down the field, so he's a, he's a thrower first, but he can run. But he was more accurate. He was a lot more accurate than I had seen him been in the past. I don't know what quarterbacks on the roster right now will still be with the program next year. But we one or two. Which ones decide to move on. Um, but regardless of who is still here at this time next year, I'm really excited for the future of Jonathan Lewis versus Tylen Oden and those kinds of position battles because that's two guys that truly fit what Rutgers wants to do offensively. They're both guys that Chris Ash brought in and Drew Maringer brought in as guys they identified that they really liked. And I think that those will be fun position battles, not only because of what they can do on the field that might be a little bit more exciting than what we're seeing now, but also because both of them have fun personalities. Uh, Tylen Oden is not from New Jersey, as you can tell if you heard him on this podcast or you've heard my interviews with him in the past. I would love for us to get a chance to talk to him again some point this season. So I hope Chris Ash is listening. And Jonathan Lewis, great personality. You also heard him on this show he is someone that has a very close bond with the future playmakers of this program, whether that's Bo Melton, whether that is running backs like John Lovett. Um, Jonathan Lewis knows these guys, and I think that he's a guy that recruits want to rally around. Yeah, I just look at it from on the field. Can he come in and compete? And physically, he can because of his strength and his size. He'll have the best arm on the team the moment he walks in the door. Better than Hayden Reddick. Well... Does Hayden graduate in December? Is that the deal? He is able to graduate He's if he able decides to, to move on, yes. Okay. Um, just wanted to, but, you know. Yeah, Something John, to keep an eye on later. Yeah, yeah, but Jonathan Lewis has a big-time arm. And, you know, for a while I watched him and thought he's, he's good. You know, he, he may not be Brandon Wimbush, but he's really good. And then, you know, talking to a few people, including Rich Hansen, he's like, there's very few Brandon Wimbushes in this world. Right. And it's true, you know, top 10 quarterback in the nation and all that stuff. So for me, watching Jonathan evolve as a player, he's really gotten better in the last year. And uh, I think he'll continue to do that. And if he gets that accuracy down, boy, he, he's going to be a very good player at Rutgers. So quarterback is the hot topic, Brian, but linebacker is arguably the biggest problem getting ready for Iowa. No, quarterback is. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll take linebacker as a bigger concern, and here's why. Because they're not any good? Yes. Because Najee Clayton is not available right now. He's stepped away, as Chris Ash says it, for personal reasons, and we're not going to go into that. 
But on top of that, Trevor Morris walking around in a walking boot this week. So that's two should-be starters that are likely out, which means you have converted walk-on running back Greg Jones. You have true sophomore Mike Deontay Roberts. And at the other outside linebacker, you have Eric Margolis. And the backups are walk-on Kevin Marquez, who used to be a fullback. You have Ronnie James, who was a safety until last Friday and hasn't played in a game since his groin surgery. And then your other outside linebacker, eh, not sure, maybe Brandon Russell. What do you do, Brian? Well, I'd say punt and look for new options, but if you punt, that means Iowa's offense is on the field, so that's not good. What do you do? You go recruit like crazy and make sure your linebackers committed, are staying committed, they're solid with you, and then you start hitting up to 2018s and say, you are going to play very soon if you commit to us. That's what you do. Because you're right. You talk, everybody looks at quarterback and what's there. We've known, Sam, you and I have spoken about this in the spring, about what their linebacker situation looks like. And you're talking about Najee Clayton, who was a safety last year, who was going to be a converted linebacker who, you know, left, you know, took a leave from the program, however you want to put it, who really doesn't have any experience. Right. And you were counting on him in a big, big way. So that explains the depth a little bit. And then, you know, you watch, and I mentioned it, this team does not have a lot of speed. They have trouble getting to the edge. Um, they're a little inconsistent with setting the edge when it comes to some of the linebackers and, and being able to force the play back inside. They're undersized. And these are the guys that were starting that are now hurt, who were the better players on the team at the linebacker position. And now you're going to go into the physical Big Ten conference where, I mean, Iowa's physical. Ohio State is incredibly physical. Michigan's physical. And you don't have the bodies to withstand it. I mean, you have kicker tryouts. In three weeks, we may be looking at linebacker tryouts for the student body. Um, it is a very difficult situation. And it comes at a time where you're, you're going against three teams that can really run the ball. And to me, that, that is the biggest issue. I, I don't know what you do if you're Chris Ash. I don't know what you do if you're Jay Neiman, the defensive coordinator. Um, it, it is not good. I mean, they struggled against New Mexico. Part of the reason was the linebacker play was not good in the first quarter. Um, New Mexico plays at about half the speed that these next three teams are going to play with. I agree that depth is a major issue, but I also want to take a minute and credit two linebackers that have done the most with what they have, and that's Eric Margolis and Greg Jones. Uh, Eric Margolis was a guy that, honestly, I was pretty surprised when Rutgers took him as a scholarship player. I think he was going to Rhode Island, if I remember that recruitment right, before Rutgers right. offered, right before signing day. And honestly, I was surprised. I thought he committed, might have committed as a walk-on. I, I was very surprised. But he's someone that never like quit, I guess. He's had injury problems and played through them, and... He's made the most out of it. You can say whatever you want about the depth, but the fact that he's earned a spot and potential starting spot on this team says a lot about his work ethic. And I would say the same thing about Greg Jones, who at this time two years ago was hanging out in Edison at Middlesex County College, hoping to maybe one day walk on at Rutgers, which he did as a running back. Then they moved him to safety, and now he's an outside linebacker starting in the Big Ten. Again, his competition is not good, but it says a lot about his work ethic and about the way that these coaches are able to push players to get the most out of them. 
look, when we're talking about these kids, it's nothing personal. They're great kids. I mean, they're, they're kids that, if you're looking at it, you, you really accept how, how much they work, how hard they work, their dedication. To come in as a walk-on where you don't get anything, and, you know, you, while everybody else is eating training table and can get whatever they want, you're, you're a normal student who just happens to be putting in the same amount of time to play football. Um, it's not a knock on what they've done or what they've accomplished or, or their character. I mean, great kids who have, you know, if my kid wound up doing something like that, I, I'd be the, the proud parent talking to everybody about how my kid did this, this, and this. I've never heard you talk about your kids in the sports they play. Exactly. So I look at it from the standpoint of, yeah, that's great, but we're here to break down performance on the field and talk about how do you get better as a program with players on the field. And while it's great that they've achieved this level, nobody in college football thought they were good enough to play at this level because if they did, they would have offered them a scholarship. Now, they can develop, and there's walk-ons that do develop, but you and I have talked about it. For every one walk-on that makes it, I'll give you the 30 that quit after a year. So kudos to them, like you said, for staying on there. But it doesn't mean you're a all Big Ten player. The the number of walk-ons on this too deep, yeah, it says something about their work ethic, but it also says something about the recruiting issues at those positions. Okay, thanks again to Brian for stopping by this week and giving us the Rutgers positivity that we all love. Uh, nothing but optimism out of. Brian, and speaking of optimism, it's time for this week's Rutgers Mailbag segment where I take your questions on topic, off topic, have a little fun. If you are a Scarlet Report member, you get first dibs in terms of the mailbag, which is where our questions came from today. If you are not a member, I don't know what you're waiting for. Go ahead and shoot me a message. Hit me up on Twitter. Send me an email, shelman at scout.com. And mention this podcast, mention the Kevin Psalm interview, and I will hook you up with an extended free trial. But that's enough of the plugs. Let's jump right into our questions for this week. And the on-topic question this week came from one of our subscribers, and he asked, what can we expect from Kamoko Ture this season? It's an interesting question. My immediate answer would be to expect nothing, because that helps you avoid the potential disappointment, but... As you guys saw, I I spoke with defensive line coach Shane Burnham earlier this week. Shane said that they've tried to work Kamoko in a little bit more this week. Kamoko's been almost entirely a scout team guy or not involved whatsoever in practice since he was cleared for contact back in September. This week he did a little bit of pass rush third down stuff, but honestly I've seen Miles Nash and I've seen Darnell Davis step into those roles to the point where I don't know if Kamoko will be able to beat either of them out. With that said, Kamoko Ture is a dynamic athlete. He's a 99 percenter. He has a lot that he can bring to the table, but before you can expect anything anything from him, you need to see him buy into what the Chris Ash era is doing. You need to see him commit himself off the field, commit himself to the weight room, commit himself to everything that this new place retires. This isn't the cruise ship that it was under Coach Kyle Flood. This is a business And Kamogo Ture, the best way for him to get on the field is to treat this like a business. So what are my expectations? I'd be surprised if we see him get meaningful snaps this year. 
but it won't be for a lack of effort on the half of the Rutgers coaches. They're doing everything they can to keep him involved, and they're pushing him. It's just a matter of if Ture responds and how his shoulders respond. You don't go through two shoulder surgeries and then magically feel better. He played injured all of last year, which is why his performance suffered and why this offseason was so stressful and irritating for him. So it starts with him getting healthy and getting mentally right, and that's when we can start talking about expectations. Off topic this week, I got another question from a subscriber who asked, it was to me and Brian, but Brian is on assignment right now, so you're getting my answer only. The question was, what are our Rutgers pregame traditions? Well, my traditions are about as boring as they get, to be honest. I get up, I do my uh, DDP yoga, bang, and then I'll cook breakfast and I'll drive to work. It's pretty much that simple. Uh, I like to listen to music. I like to take the scenic route on the way to the games, which for me means I I take River Road. I like to drive past the little uh, petting zoo in Highland Park. I like to drive past the goats standing on the logs because it's fun to look at before a football game. But outside of that, I don't really have any pre-game traditions. I try to get to the Scarlet Walk when I can to film it for you guys. I usually hit one or two tailgates just to, uh, you know, kiss the babies, shake hands. I, I'm a, I am a celebrity, so I have to treat myself uh, as such, and I know you all enjoy that. Uh, other than that, there's not really much to it. My post-game traditions are usually work for six hours, go home, and watch wrestling. So, Nothing that would interest you all, but thank you for the question anyway. Thank you to everyone that submitted questions. I know a lot of you have not had your questions answered yet. I can only pick two a week, so when I get 20, it's hard to whittle it down. So if you still have a question that you want to get in that you haven't heard me address yet, go ahead and ask it again. I I do see them all, and I'm not ignoring them. I just pick the two that make the most sense every week. The best way to get your question is being a Scarlet Report subscriber. If you're not, I've already told you to go check that out. You can also hit me up at Sam Hellman Scout on Twitter and my email shellman at scout.com. So there you have it. Another Rutgers Scout cast is in the books. Episode 29. Thank you to my friend Kevin Som for both being a gracious host when I visited him in his Morristown offices and for telling his story. It's not a story that's easy for him to tell He's told it a thousand times now because it's so powerful and it obviously changed his life. It it changed my life covering it as a college student and it prepared me for what eventually happened with Eric Legrand. I knew how to discuss injuries and I knew how to discuss serious topics like that because people like Kevin opened their doors to me earlier in my journalism career. Uh, Again, I encourage you all to check out Kevin's podcast, the Heads and Tails podcast, Find him on Twitter, KSAUM, S-A-U-M, 37. Let him know you like the show. Uh, let him know you enjoyed his, uh, his story, he, the two of us talking. I'm going to be on his show, and we talk about my career and, and Rutgers and recruiting rankings and injuries and Eric Legrand and Ray Rice and all that kind of stuff on his show, so keep an eye out for that. But that's that. We're approaching an hour here, and the last thing that you want to do before kickoff against Iowa is listen to me talk for an entire hour. I know that 45 minutes is maybe pushing it even with my radio voice. So thank you, everyone, for listening to this week's Rutgers ScoutCast. Next week, we have another fun guest, and that is my guy, Sebastian Joseph, the defensive tackle at Rutgers, a leader of that defensive line physically a beast and the funniest thing when you think about Sebastian Joseph we get into that next week 
is that this six foot four, two hundred ninety five pound defensive lineman? Yeah, he was not only the captain of his football team, he was the captain of his drama club. We discuss that next week on the Rutgers Scoutcast.